Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Firstly, welcome. Uh, It's great to have you with us. My name is Dave, for those of you who don't know me. And today we we are starting a new series. We're pausing, we've been in the Book of Acts for a fair while, we're gonna return to the Book of Acts shortly, but every now and then in life and in ministry, God starts tapping you on the shoulder to the point where that tap becomes a knock and then the knock becomes almost a punch and you're like, okay, God, we gotta do something. And uh, we're at a point where I've just felt this nudge over and over again to to speak into an issue, um, to speak into a movement, to speak into an agenda within our society at the moment. Um, Something that is growing, something that is becoming more and more prevalent. And I do wanna say that if you do have children here, these messages for the next few weeks are not going to be PG. We are going to be addressing some adult themes. We're not gonna see adult themes. But we are gonna be addressing adult themes. So if you have young children and you don't want them to be hearing certain adult things, then we have creche and we have children's ministry. I encourage you to take them out there. If you're happy for your children to be hearing adult things and learning about this stuff, awesome. Praise God, it's gonna be good. And I'm gonna try really hard today to stay with my notes because normally I run around all over the place, as you know, and I know the Holy Spirit will do that because He always does that, but He's definitely been prompting me and uh, I'm excited about what He's gonna say. As we look at what I would call the new rainbow movement, a movement that began as a political movement, but is now, the reason we need to speak into it is because it's no longer just for the hallowed halls of our politicians, but it is now encroaching into our schools, now into our kindergartens. It's been in our unis for a while, now in our public libraries, sporting events, almost everywhere you look, and even in the church. And the time has come for us to speak, to speak boldly, to speak the truth, to speak the truth in love. As we start a new series, we're simply calling Reclaiming the Rainbow, the difference between pride and promise. Reclaiming the Rainbow, the difference between pride and promise. Friends, our nation has one day to celebrate the Anzacs. It is one day to remember the armistice that caused the guns to go silent at the end of World War I. It is one day to celebrate Christmas. It is one weekend to celebrate Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is two weeks and a bunch of other one-off days to celebrate our Indigenous culture and acknowledge the sins of the past. And it has an entire month to celebrate and propagate gay pride and promote the LGBTQIA2S plus movement. The entire month of June. And it's really important that in order for us to speak into this, 
we actually understand where it comes from and why June is given over to Pride Month. Because it's one thing to have an opinion, but opinions are worthless if they're not rooted and established in truth. And one of the problems we have in our world today is everyone has an opinion and everyone thinks that their opinion is valid just because they have it. That is nonsense. You cannot speak into something with any authority unless that opinion is rooted in truth. And we have to understand where the pride movement is coming from and why there is this push. And really, it it all comes back to, to the reality that 50 odd years ago, in fact, it's only until very recently that any public display or any public promotion of LGB interactions were illegal. So it was illegal to have any sort of public display of affection even for gay people. And on the 28th of June, 1969, police raided a gay bar known as the Stonewell Inn in New York City, uh, which is an underground bar. All A lot of these bars, this is where because, they, uh, because LGB people couldn't associate with one another in public places, they were drawn to underground places, often run by underground people and underground associations like the Mafia. And so the police would conduct raids regularly to try and break this up, arrest people, find people, do these sorts of things. And on June 28th, 1969, the Stonewell Inn police raided a gay bar and that raid happened with what I would call violent force, violent force. And for the first time, the community there, the Stonewell Inn fought back. And in fighting back, a movement was birthed. Now, there were already organisations and agencies, advocacy agencies trying to promote gay rights that existed. But for the first time on the 28th of June, 1969, when they responded to the violent force that was put against them and they said, we're not going to put up with this, riots happened, riots broke out for quite a while. And then one year later on the 28th of June was the first ever gay pride rally held by gay activists walking through the streets of New York City to, pro- to protest laws against LGB people in a protest known as the Christopher Street Liberation Day Walk. That's really where gay pride began. And the movement gained momentum and groups were started. And fascinatingly, on this very day, There's a reason why we're doing this today. On this very day, June the 25th, 1978, so 45 years ago today, a gay freedom parade, or at a gay freedom parade in San Francisco, a rainbow flag created by a gay activist and drag queen known as, uh, whose name was Gilbert Baker, bearing eight colours, hot pink for sex, red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sunlight, green for nature, turquoise for magic and art, indigo for serenity and violet for spirit. That flag was unveiled for the very first time as a symbol and celebration of gay pride. 
45 years ago today. Due to printing issues, that flag was very quickly changed to the six coloured flag we know today. Pink was removed, turquoise was removed, indigo was changed to blue, producing the six coloured flag, now recognised as the symbol of gay pride all over the world. And in Gilbert's own words, he said this, I wanted the symbol to become a flag because I see flags as the most powerful symbol of pride. A natural flag from the sky that fits the mission of liberating gay people to come out, be visible, to live in the truth and say, this is who I am. And since that day, 45 years ago, colours have been added to the flag. Uh, the flag's grown in diversity as the cause has grown in diversity. But at its, cause, at its core, that six coloured flag remains the most recognisable symbol of gay pride across the world. And every June, it is hung from buildings. It is put across Guernseys. It is lit up on buildings, painted on streets as a symbol of gay pride and advocating for the LGBTQ plus pride movement in the world. The question, friends, is how should the church respond? How do we respond to what's going on in our culture? 45 years on from the flag's inception, at a time when 50% of marriages end in divorce. At a time where at many secular weddings now, rather than saying the words, until death do us part, the words, until our love runs dry, is quoted. At a time where decades of hard work done to elevate women in society, to champion them in sport and the workplace is being undone as quickly as a pair of shoelaces, as biological men identifying as women are competing in women's sports, advertising women's clothing and lobbying that words like mother, parent and breastfeeding are removed from official government documentation. Where libraries have children's books in colourful array at the front door with titles like Mummy, Mama and Me and From Prejudice to Pride where kindergarten students are given gay penguin lessons, where adult men dressed as women are reading books to children in public libraries, where the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans and Intersex Association is actively lobbying governments to, and I'm gonna quote from page 16, section 14A and 14G, to eliminate laws limiting legal capacity of adolescents to provide consent to sex, and to end the criminalisation and stigmatisation of adolescent sexuality under the belief that teenagers need more freedom to explore sexuality with one another. What are we to do when advocacy around the LGBTQ plus movement is no longer about legal rights and societal inclusion, but about insistence upon celebration and promotion? And what are we supposed to do when historically, the church, which is supposed to be the hope of the world, has universally shut its doors and condemned those wrestling with same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria, 
resulting in deep pain and great rejection rather than the deep healing and miraculous restoration that the church was supposed to bring. What are we supposed to do when we know that Jesus offended the religious people of His day because He ate with sinners? He ate with the people on the margins. He loved the people on the margins. He did life with the people on the margins. And where? His people. What are we as Bible-believing followers of Jesus Christ to do with the LGBTQIA2S plus movement? How do we respond? What does the Bible say about this? And if it says anything at all, is it relevant to a time like today? These are the questions and the things that have been buzzing around my mind. What does the Bible say? And it's because of that that we're beginning this new series. So before I say anything else, I wanna pray. And I'm gonna get on my knees for this because I think it's important. You can pray with me if you like. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is true. We thank You that Your Word is relevant in all seasons at all times. We thank You that Your Word brings life. We pray, Lord, that over the next few weeks as we examine some of these things happening in our culture and happening in the church, that You would speak, that You would breathe, that You would fill us with grace, love and truth and empower us to be Your hands and feet on the earth, we pray. In Jesus' precious Name, Amen. Amen. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna lay a foundation of a few key assumed bedrocks because we're, I don't know exactly how many weeks this is gonna go for. There's a lot of notes, right? There's a lot of notes. This could go for a long time. I'm trying to keep it succinct and trying to just hit on a few key ideas and a few key issues that we see in our society. Uh, but. What I wanna do is just lay some bedrock because we don't have time to do the sermon series that establishes the bedrock because we're speaking to the church. So let me put a few things out here on which this series will be built. Number one, we have to understand that the church's job is not to judge the world. The church's job is not to judge the world. The church's job is to shine the light of God into the world. Jesus Himself said, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save it. It is not our job to judge the world. 1 Corinthians 5.12 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God will judge the world in the fullness of time. God is the one who will do that. He is the just, true, awesome, wonderful, loving judge. And He will do that at the end of all times. Jesus, the Son of God has come to save the world. The church has come to proclaim that saving love to the world. But the church is called to hold the church to account. 1 Corinthians 4 says, we're not to judge the hidden motives within the church, 
but we are called to call out sin, outwardly sinful behaviour. That is the mandate of the church according to 1 Corinthians 4 and 5. And so this series is a message to the church. Yes, my hope and prayer is by the grace of God, if He wants it to, it will go to the ends of the earth and that people far from God will hear the Word, will come to a deep revelation of the love of God that is theirs in Christ Jesus, will turn to faith and will will just follow Him and be totally radically transformed. That's my hope and prayer. But the intention of this message is not to condemn the world. It is to warn and instruct and teach the church. Because when you start walking around and you start seeing churches with a six coloured rainbow flag sitting out the front or hanging from the doors, there is a problem. And as the church, we need to speak to the church. And especially with the younger generation coming up, with the social media generation, which is having stuff thrown down your throats, you need to understand what the Bible says. What is the difference, if there is any, between the promotion of pride and the pursuit of promise? That's what this series is about. Number two, there is a God. He is one, triune in nature, three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, co-substantial, divine persons in one Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and He is good. He is not hateful, He is love, He is light, He is good. Number three, the universe was created by Him, through Him and for Him. Amen. Amen. He upholds it in divine order. To use an apologetic term, He is the unmoved mover who exists outside of creation and yet is intimately engaged and invested in His creation. Number four, that means there must be objective truth. If there is a God who was the unmoved mover, who is intimately invested in His creation, there must be objective truth. The one who creates order and our universe is orderly, defines the order. Truth is not relative. Truth is the fabric that holds creation together and can be Known. How? Because this God has revealed Himself. This is number five. This God has revealed Himself to humanity in the living, breathing, sacrificing, resurrecting, ascending person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. And now to all generations and by His Holy Spirit, through His divinely inspired Word, we know Truth. The Bible is the inspired Word of God written by the hands of men under the authority of the Holy Spirit, unlike any other document in all of human history. It is accurate, reliable, true, historical, poetic, apocalyptic, prophetic, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, 
revealing God's plans for humanity and His heart for all people. The Bible is not a guidebook, it is truth. It is light and life to a people trapped in darkness and death. The Bible doesn't just tell us what happened, it tells us what always happens. We believe what the Bible says and our foundation is built upon what is revealed to us in its pages. Number six, this very Word, the Bible, that is truth, makes it abundantly clear that God loves everyone. Regardless of whether you are gay, lesbian, straight, queer, gender confused, white, black, brown, Christian, atheist, Muslim, if you work for the ATO or you're a parking inspector. (laughs) It's gonna be a heavy series, so I'm gonna throw a bit of that in. God loves you. He loves you. God loves you. But in order to understand this, we must understand that only the author of a book gets to define the meaning of its content. It is only the one who created love who gets to define love. Which means love is not love. Love is what the Creator says love is. Love does not mean and has never meant universal acceptance of all behaviour. Do you know what? The other day I saw a father with his toddler daughter walking out of Mount Barker Woolworths. That toddler went sprinting towards the road. Do you know what the father did? Have a guess. He picked her up, wrapped her up in his arms and said, no. Do you know what the toddler did? Kicked, screamed, yelled, (laughs) threw her head back, but I wanna go on the road. The father just held her there, said, no, darling. Why? Because he loved her. The loving thing to do was not to let her do whatever she wanted to do because it felt right. The loving thing to do was to protect her from what he knew would destroy her. So he held her. She might have, if she was older, been like, how dare you oppress me with such oppressive ideals. (laughs) But the father just held her, said, I know what's good for you because I am your father. The one who made loves, love gets to define love. And as someone once did a painting for me in the early days of, painting for us, Joe and I, in the early days of our marriage, this beautiful little painting, Jenny Hindry is her name, she attends our Lobethal campus. And the painting said this, love is wanting the best for someone in the highest and most pure way. I thought, what a beautiful definition of love. Love is wanting the best for someone in the highest and most pure way. God is the one who defines what love is. 
I think we're up to number seven. Guess what? That means that disagreeing with someone or having an opinion that is contrary to theirs, if expressed with humility, grace, and a heart that genuinely cares for them, that is not hate speech. You are not a bigot because you think differently to someone else and actually want to express that if the motive of your heart is love, is wanting the best for them in the highest and most pure way. If the motive of the heart is to tear down, to isolate and to make someone feel small, then that is bigotry and that is hate speech. But where the motive is their best, it is not hate speech to have a different opinion. And our world at the moment, anytime anyone dares to speak against anything that is the cultural norm says, hate speech, shut the door. And what's happened is the church has become so afraid of being seen as bigoted or hateful that we've stopped speaking. We mustn't stop speaking because it is only in the speaking that love is actually revealed. How beautiful are the feet are those who bring Good news. Church, the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us from sin is good news. How will they know unless someone goes for me? How will they hear unless someone speaks? It's time to speak. Number eight, I do not hate LGBTQIA2S plus people. I am not doing this series because I'm afraid of them. I'm not doing this series because I dislike them. I have family members, extended family members who are gay and I love them. I have friends, good friends who are gay and I love them. I wanna make that really clear. My cousin has held Benji when he was a baby for so many hours that his arm froze. I love him. He loves my family. I'm not better than anyone. I'm not more righteous than anyone. I understand that pride rises its ugly head in every single one of us. In God's kingdom, there is no scale of sin. We are not here just to address LGBT. We are here to address pride. I know my own sinful heart and I am just as much a beggar before a holy God as anyone else. But I speak because I am a beggar who's been given the bread. I know my Saviour I know that Jesus has come to me in my filth and has set me free, not by works of my own, but by the grace of God. So my prayer in all of this is that I would not come and speak in this series with wise and persuasive words or a charisma or a platform as one speaking down to anybody, but simply as one coming with trembling and fear, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power that Christ might be all in all and that people lost in darkness might see an exceedingly great light.
couple of years ago at an Easter service in this very building, and those of you who are around will remember, it was really dark. We blacked it all out. It was an awesome service. People gave their lives to Jesus, a good Friday. And after that service, someone approached me and they said to me, I've never met them before, they were an American, and they said, Dave, I wanna get baptised. Been convicted by all that God's doing. I wanna get baptised, I wanna live my life Him. I was like, awesome, praise God, let's do it. They're like, I've gotta go back to America in six weeks, but I wanna get baptised while I'm here. So I was like, great, let's make it happen. Got their number, said, I'll give you a call in a couple of days time, we'll lock this in. Couple of hours later, someone rang me and said, Dave, I just want you to know that person who you spoke to, and I'm not, not gonna use their real name, I'm gonna call them Barry. Barry is not Barry, Barry's Belinda. And Belinda is uh, a daughter of dear friends of ours over in the US. She's living with us for six weeks. Her parents don't know what to do because she's decided she wants to be Barry, so they've sent her to us to try and fix the issue. And then they basically said, can you deal with it? <laughs> it's like, oh, struth. So I met with Barry uh, and we spent, an entire, we spent three hours at Allgate. She came wanting to be baptised. We had a beautiful conversation, hours of back and forth. I listened, I listened, and I listened as she unpacked her history. She was very open, very vulnerable, very real. And at the end of it, she said, will you baptise me? And I said to her, listen, I love you. I see you. I understand, well, I don't understand, but I, I can see where you're coming from. But baptism is about dying to self and choosing to pick up my cross and follow Him. Our conversation carried on and carried on and carried on. At the end of that conversation, she said to me, Dave, thank you for your time. I've felt heard. I've felt listened to. I've felt loved. I disagree with you but thank you for your time. A few months later, I got a phone call from the person who'd rung me before to let me know that Barry was Belinda. And this person said, Dave, you're not gonna believe it. Barry's back in America, living as Belinda. Still lots going on, lots to wrestle with, but she's come to the realisation that God made her female and she wants to live as a female in the world. I think that's worth celebrating. I share that because I believe God's Word is true. And our heart is that every interaction we have with anybody wrestling with pride, when they come into contact with this church, that they would say, I feel heard, I feel loved, I feel listened to. I might not disagree with you. I mean, I might not agree with you. 
I can see that you have got a strong stance built on the fabric of truth, but I can see that your arms are open, ready to love me and embrace me. That's the heart and that's the posture. So with that introduction done, Let's go to the Bible. <laughs> so this series is, again, we're gonna take our time and work through. And the goal is that over the next few weeks, we're gonna address a number of different things. We're gonna look at the origins of pride. Today, where does it come from? And once we understand where it comes from, then we can begin to understand what does it do? What are the, what's the implications? What does it create? And so we'll work our way through a lot of those things. But to start with, we're gonna take a helicopter view of Genesis 1 through 9. So we'll jump in and out, follow with me. The verses will be up on the screen. Starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock, of all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Chapter two, four and nine. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the very breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there He put The man he had formed, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, any tree but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought it to the man. The man said, now this, uh, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Chapter three, how are you going? Chapter three, we have to do this because if we're not grounded in the Word, we got nothing. I know sometimes you want me just to come up here and yell some inspiring things and then get out of here. (laughs) But we're gonna do some deep work in the next little bit. In the next 
some deep work. It's pens and paper, friends. I say it every week. Let's keep going. Chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, underline that, circle that, highlight that, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will surely die. Notice that Eve actually responds initially beautifully. She takes the word, someone, the enemy brings a little half truth and she just responds beautifully with the word. But look what happens next. You will not certainly die. What's that? It's a lie. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Verse 19. There's consequences for sin. Verse 19, by the sweat of the brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Chapter four happens, the whole Cain and Abel situation. If you don't know that story, Cain and Abel bring an offering to the Lord, an offering of worship. Abel brings one that is acceptable to God. Cain brings one that he wants to be acceptable to God. Abel does it God's way. Cain does it his way. And in verse four and six, we see this. Uh, Verse six, sorry. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The outcome of that behaviour is that Cain murders Abel. What we then see over the next couple of chapters is this slow depravity of humanity where it just goes down and down and down and down into violence and sinful behaviour, each person doing what their own heart desires. And if we carry on and we come all the way over to chapter six, verse 11, we see, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, a man who had been found righteous in his sight, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. The flood comes There's horrible destruction. Noah and his family are in the ark for a really long time. Chapter nine, verse 12, we're almost there. And God said, after the floodwaters recede, Noah comes out of the ark. God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds 
and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. (sighs) What do we see in all of that? Genesis 1 through 9 is a picture of what happens when pride comes against the promise of God. That's a simple summary. Yeah, I could have said that without reading it, but then we don't have the basis, so it was good to go through it. Genesis 1 through 9 is a picture of what happens when pride comes against the promise of God. Let me put it, let me explain, let me show you. You see, we see creation, this perfect creation, human beings made in the image of God, unlike any other creature in all of creation. Nothing else is made in the image of God. Nothing else is is flesh, mind and spirit. Nothing else like humanity. And so God makes us and in that beautiful design, male and female, where He's given us of His Spirit, in that design, there is life. There is life. And in that design, where there is life, there is purpose. The purpose is go and take care of it. Here's the creation that I've made. It's yours. Take care of it. I've given you stuff to do. I've given you work to do. You've got a job. You've got a sense of calling, which flows out of the life that I have given you in your identity, your nature as image bearers. You are my children. That is who you are. Now go and steward what I've given you. It's beautiful. And in the midst of that place, there's a choice. Because God comes to humanity, He goes, see all of this? All of it's yours. All of it. Every little bit of it. It's all yours. See that, that thing there? That's not yours. That's not for you. Don't touch that. Everything else is yours. Don't touch that. And if you do, death will come upon humanity. And not just upon humanity, but upon all of creation. So don't touch that. Just enjoy everything that I've given you. And for a while, that choice seemed easy. They're there doing their thing, living life, no shame. It's beautiful. But then into that perfect place, into life comes a whisper. Did God say? And with the whisper comes temptation. You will not die. You will be like God. And with temptation comes what? Pride. Why pride? Because creation begins with this promise that we're made in His image, but the temptation to take the fruit is saying, you will be like God. You will not die. You will be like God. Do it your way. 
take it and you'll be like Him. Why should He be Lord over you? Why should He get to tell you what is right and wrong? Why should He be the only one who gets to define what is true, what is right, what is wrong? When you could do that for yourself, forget Him, forget His rules, forget His ways, do it your way, be your own God. You see, to not take it is to humble yourself. To not take it is to humble yourself and accept the fact that the one who creates life and gives life knows what's best. But to take it is to reject His Lordship, reject His authority and to say, no, 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 you don't know best. I know best. And the root of that decision, that doing that is, that's what pride is. It's putting ourselves over God. Let me, let me uh, give you some Scriptures just to back that up. You see, Proverbs 3.34 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The Hebrew word there for pride is the word lutz. Everyone say lutz. It means to mock or deride. James and Peter both quote this proverb James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5. And when they quote it, they use the Greek word, watch this one, hupophaneos. Something like H-O-O-P-E-R-A-F-A-N-O-S. Here's what this means though. This means to put oneself above all others, to make oneself, watch this, look at me, preeminent. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Hebrew words of the same root, gahon and gavar, which mean to exalt oneself or magnify oneself. Let me put it all together. What is it saying? It's saying that the very heart, the core of human pride, the very essence of what it is, the reason God hates it is because pride is to make a mockery of God by establishing ourselves as preeminent in His place. The very root of pride is to reject God's Lordship, to reject His authority, to tell us what is right and wrong, truth, a lie, life or death, and say, we know better. That is exactly what happens in the garden. That is what pride is. The root of pride is a lie. Pride is doing it my way and in so doing it makes a mockery of God. It's establishing ourselves as Lord. But church, the Bible tells us that God will not be mocked. Galatians 6, 7, 8, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And this is why the church must not affirm pride. Because friends, the church is God's vessel for proclaiming life. And pride is the vessel through which the enemy brought death. The church is God's vessel for proclaiming Life. But pride is the vessel through which the enemy brought 
death. Pride always leads to death because it's rooted in a lie. Pride leads to death because it's rooted in a lie, which means the foundation is shaky. And when we put our feet on shifting sands, when we base our identity, when we base our decisions, when we base our choices on shifting sands, those choices will ultimately fall down. As my dear friend Stuart once says, he goes, a lie borrows integrity from the future. You can sustain it for a while, but eventually it will catch up with you and will lead to all sorts of destruction. And we see it over and over again, yeah? Where people are living a lie, eventually it all comes out. And the sad thing is it's been a part of the church for years and years and years, where people who are supposed to be living in the truth are actually living in a lie and then it gives the church a really bad name. But that's people, not Christ. Christ is unshakable because He is the rock on which we stand because He is the truth. So pride is rooted in a lie, but the promise of God is firmly established in truth. How's everyone going? So here's what we wanna do in just a few minutes that we have left. That's, that's the introduction to this series. Why is it that the Bible is opposed to pride. It's not because God hates people who wrestle with same-sex attraction. He loves them. The reason the Bible is opposed to pride is because pride is rooted in a lie and the lie leads to death. And God has come that we might, Christ has come that we might have life and life to the full. And so if we affirm pride, what we're doing is affirming death. It's not our message. We don't affirm death. We speak life and we proclaim life and we believe that those who are living in death can be called and drawn into the life that Christ has come to bring everyone, regardless of sexuality, race, gender, Christ has come that you might have life and life to the full. How? By dying to pride, by laying down our desires, and submitting to His will. From going from a subversive spirit to a submissive spirit. From saying rather than pushing against God's ways, I recognise the truth is truth. I don't have to like it. I don't even have to understand it. But if He says it's not good for me to run out onto that road where there's traffic that may well knock me over, I'm gonna choose to believe that. And if that means I live a life of celibacy, that's what I'm gonna do because that's what He's called me to, knowing that in that life is life and life to the full. Now it's quarter past 11. So here's what we're gonna do. We wanna, uh, give me five minutes. Can I have five minutes? Is that all right? We can pray. Give me five minutes because I wanna speak about what does the lie do? 
I wanna just start this and we're gonna spend the next few weeks looking at the different things that pride does and the different things that the promise does. There's one thing that I just wanna speak to right now that, the, that pride does, the root of pride. What does this lie to? The root of pride, what we see in the Scriptures is that it destroys identity. How does it cause death? We just said that pride leads to death. What does it cause death? It leads to the death of identity. What does the promise of God do? It leads to the redemption of identity. A couple of quick things, identity. You will not die, you will surely be like God. The problem is, friends, that they were already like God. They were created in the image of God. So the liar comes and says, you are not who God made you to be. You are not who God said you are. That's the lie. You are not what God has said you are. And if you believe that lie, what's happened? That's the very fabric of who we are. It means our identity is being eroded and destroyed. And what we got to understand is that when that lie is believed, rather than understanding that my, my value, because value and identity are intrinsically linked, scripturally speaking, rather than understanding that my value is actually determined by my identity as a child of God, as an image bearer, the fact that I'm made in His image means I have infinite value and worth. And because I have infinite value and worth, then I do whatever the heck He wants me to do as a response to who I am, who's with me. But when the lie comes and says, you have no infinite value, you are not made in the image of God. When that lie comes and we believe that what humanity does because value and and identity are intrinsically linked, we begin to believe that the things that give me value are therefore the things that shape my identity. And so if you remove image of God, you say, therefore, value must come in what I do, what I have and how I feel. And when what I do, what I have and how I feel give me value, I begin to believe that therefore what I do, what I have and what I feel are who I am. So rather than what I do, what I have and what I feel being a response to my identity as a child of God, what I do, what I have and what I feel become the very essence of who I am and therefore the means by which I feel valued. You can go back and look at that later and unpack that. So what we have is an entire generation who has believed a lie and believed their identity is in how they feel not who God has already said they are. Yeah? Now, when the promise of God comes, you go to chapter nine. We're gonna pick this up again next week because we've got to close. But in chapter nine, notice what happens after the flood. Verse six, whoever sheds human blood, by human shall their blood be shed. But then he says, for in the image of God has God made mankind. After the flood, God reaffirms his covenant promise and readdresses the identity of human beings. After the flood, God says, let me reestablish, let me redeem your identity. Let me make it really clear. Humans have spiralled out of control because you've believed a lie. Let me bring some truth that this is who you are. So the promise of God comes and says, there is a punishment for sin. Sin is sin, pride leads to death. 
There is a consequence for sin, but I am the God who redeems. Noah and the ark are pictures of Christ. They're prophetic pictures of Christ who would come and He would be the one who submits to the purpose of God. He would be the one who goes through the waters, which means death. We talked about this in baptism. He's the one who does that so that we might be saved. It is not, it is not that Jesus has come and therefore anything goes. It is not as I submit to Him because He suffered and died for me, as I submit to Him, as I submit to His ways, then I walk in life. Amen. He's bore the punishment of my pride that I might walk not in pride, but in humility and submission to Him and experience life. And the rainbow is a symbol of God's covenant love. The rainbow is seven colours, seven being the number of God, perfection. It's the symbol of covenant that all who would submit to Him, all who would come and say, I'm not gonna do it my way. I'm gonna receive Your grace and obey Your Word and trust Your mercy on my life and walk in life. That's what the rainbow is a sign of. When we make it a six coloured thing, six is the number of man. It's not an accident, church. Six is the number of men. We've turned a promise of covenant love and restoration and redemption through sacrifice into a bow of offence. In ancient times, when a warrior had finished war, they would hang up their bow, a reverse bow. It was a symbol of peace after a time of war. God comes, God is light. He shines His light in the sky through the rain as a symbol of war. And He says, here is my promise. Light has come to humanity as a sign of peace as you submit to me. And the proof is it's perfect. It's perfect peace. It's seven colours. There's a rainbow around the throne of God in heaven in Revelation. He lives in perfect peace and wants to bring perfect peace to humanity through submission. But what we've done is we've taken a bow and rather than receiving God's bow as a symbol of peace through submission, we've made it a subversive sign where we take that bow and an act of defiance and declaring war on a holy God. The sign that He has given us, we've counterfeited because the enemy counterfeits everything God creates. We said, we're not gonna do it your way. We're not gonna receive your perfect peace. We're gonna do it our way as a six coloured thing, the number of humanity, and we're gonna aim it right at you and say, we are God and we will do it our way. And we mustn't fall into the trap of affirming that because the message we have is so much better. The pride rainbow is the antithesis of God's promise. And the promise rainbow is the antithesis of pride. And the church's job is not to declare war on God, but to speak life to humanity in all that He has given us. I have so much more to say, but I'm gonna pause right there. And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take communion.
Because communion is a sign that God gave everything so we could have life. Communion is a sign that Jesus, Philippians 2, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but humbled Himself. He humbled Himself and that God has exalted Him. And so when we take communion, what we're doing is recognising that if God would humble Himself even to death, how can we elevate ourselves and reject His gift of life. But by taking communion, we humble ourselves before a holy God and we say, I'm gonna stand on the truth. I'm gonna live my life on the promise that You have given me. I'm gonna choose to say no to that tree and to say yes to the garden. Because in Christ, He has redeemed humanity from death to life as we go from a subversive spirit to a submissive one. Let's stand to our feet and let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is true. Thank You that Your Word is good. Father, our hope and our prayer is that we would recognise that the root of pride does not lead to life, does not lead to the things the world is chasing. But what the world needs is life and life is only found in You. So we wanna submit to Your ways humble ourselves before You and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to You. Lord, let us walk in freedom. Not in a freedom in an earthly sense that leads to bondage, but it's as we are yoked to You, as we bind ourselves to You, we actually find true freedom that leads to everlasting life. So we receive Your body and we receive Your blood. We receive it in the precious Name of Jesus. Amen. So you can take communion. We've got stations here and here and we have gluten-free at the back. If you'd like prayer in this time, please come forward. We also have a space upstairs. So if there's something that's been said today that's really hit you and you want just some really private prayer, we're gonna have people upstairs who are there to pray with you. As you do that, otherwise you can come and be prayed for here. And we'll close by declaring that Christ alone is our cornerstone. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.